everyone and welcome to episode 546 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. What have you been up to this week? Over here, well, what are, where are we? When, well, when this podcast is released, there are only a few days left in the financial year. And I know this is weird and I will admit I'm a bit strange here, but I kind of love the end of the financial year. Well, hang on, that's not quite right. It's not that I love it, but I always have a sense of anticipation around this time of year. I can't quite explain why. I think it's because a lot of significant things have always happened to me around this time of year. I mean, June has seemed to be the time of year when my For example, my beautiful pets, Rex and Rocky, first came into my life. And I once purchased my home on 30 June, on actually exactly 30 June. Um, Once I also bought a car on 30 June after my clunky old 1992, (laughs) yes, 1992, tiny car just literally gave up on me. Um, I literally got zero dollars for the trade-in, that kind of thing. So anyway, yeah, I purchased a car on 30 June. But I also think that there is that kind of tendency to think, I'm going to make that purchase before 30 June, whatever that purchase might be, simply because it makes financial sense. And because in many cases, you'll actually save money. Uh, Whether it's because of a sale or whether because there's some kind of tax incentive to do so. So if you're looking for that kind of 30 June purchase, make sure that you do check out the many courses that are currently at a very low 30 June price at the Australian Writers Centre. There's no better time than now to be making that purchase. And those self-paced courses can be started at any time. You don't have to be ready to do them now because you'll have access for 12 months. So you can save money now and do it when you're ready. For example, if you want help on creating better characters, go to Fiction Essentials Characters. I actually love that course because you just start off with this seed of an idea of a character and you, that's all. Just this, this, this. We even help you develop that character and by the end of the course, we've led you step by step so that you have an entire story for that character. Yep, with a beginning, middle and end. Um, if you need help with structure, which actually, quite frankly we all do, there's um, Fiction Essentials Structure. Uh, if you want to be led step by step, literally step by step on how to write a short story, then there's Short Story Essentials as well, which is um, such a great breakdown on, on, on how to write a short story. For something a bit different, if you want to get better at writing um, real estate copy, if you're a copywriter and you want to add another string to your bow, there is Real Estate copywriting. Or, you know, if you want to ride the wave, the young adult wave that seems to be happening at the moment, there is writing for young adults. Like, I'm not going to talk about them all. There are 35 courses at this special price and they're up to 40% off. So don't miss it. Go to writercenter.com.au slash sale and you have until what a surprise, 30 June to get the special price. That's writercenter.com.au slash sale. Now let's move on to the writing tip this week. 
I heard a wonderful quote from the author Pip Williams, I think it was from Storyfest or something, who wrote the international bestseller The Dictionary of Lost Words. And of course, her latest book is The Bookbinder of Jericho. Um, She was talking about her writing habit. And this is what Pip said. She said, don't set an unachievable daily word count for yourself. My word count per writing session was one word. That's all I had to write. And if I wrote one word, I'd have a successful day. And I challenge anyone to stop at one word. You simply can't. So that's what I did. I set my goal as low as possible, one word a day, and I coupled it with something I loved, which was coffee. It only took a couple of sessions for me to think about writing and instantly start salivating. (laughs) That's from Pip Williams. Okay, so one word a day is definitely achievable, right? And it's true. Once you write that one word, you're more than likely going to keep going. So if you've been struggling with an unachievable word count or an unrealistic word count, maybe think about following Pip's advice and committing to just one word a day. All right, let's move on to our competition this week. I have three copies of Unfortunately Yours by Tessa Bailey. Now, Tessa Bailey is a number one New York Times bestselling author and she's back with another hilarious premise. A sham marriage for money brings Natalie and August together. But could their union be about more than that? You have the chance to find out because I'm giving away three copies for you of Unfortunately Yours. Here's the blurb. After losing her job and her fiancé in one fell swoop, Natalie Voss returned home to lick her wounds. A few months later, she's sufficiently drowned her sorrows in Cabernet and she's ready to get back on her feet. She just needs her trust fund to finance her new business venture. Unfortunately, the terms require she marry before she can have the money. And, well, dumped, remember? But Natalie is desperate enough to propose to a man who makes her want to kill him and kiss him in equal measure. August Cates may own a vineyard, but he doesn't know Jack about making wine. He's determined to do his late best friend proud, no matter what it takes. Except his tasting room is empty, his wine is disgusting, seriously, he once saw someone gag, and his buddy's legacy is circling the drain. No bank will give him the loan he needs to turn the business around. And then the gorgeous, feisty heiress knocks on his door. Natalie has haunted August's dreams since the moment they met, but their sizzling chemistry immediately morphed into simmering insults. Now, a quickie marriage could help them both. A sham wedding, a few weeks living under the same roof, and then they can go their separate ways, assuming they make it out alive. How hard could it be? There's just one thing they didn't account for. Their unfortunate, unbearable, undeniable attraction. There you go. Unfortunately, yours by Tessa Bailey. So for your chance to win, go to writercenter.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 3rd of July. That's writercenter.com.au slash win. And now, are you ready for the word of the week? Okay, so the word of the week this week is moi. M-O-I-R-E, moi. Yes, it's a real word and not just the sound you make when you air kiss someone. I'm not talking about moi. Moi is a real word and it's a type of watered fabric as in like silk or wool. 
So you might need to do an image search to see what I mean, but it's fabric that almost looks like it has patterns that you'd find, say, in natural wood. A fun thing about this word is that it comes from the French word moi, which actually comes from the English word mohair. So the French word M-O-I-R-E comes from the English word mohair, M-O-H-A-I-R. So it's like when you Google translate something and then they translate it back and it comes up with a different, completely different meaning. Okay, so there you go, moi. (laughs) And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. Let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Today, I'm talking to Anthony McCartan. He is a New Zealand writer and filmmaker and is best known for writing big-budget biopics, The Theory of Everything, Darkest Hour, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Two Popes, and Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody. Anthony has been nominated for four Academy Awards, including twice for Best Adapted Screenplay for The Theory of Everything and The Two Popes. He has written 10 novels and his latest is going zero. Thank you so much for joining us today, Anthony. Most welcome. Congratulations on your book. This is Unputdownable, Page Turner. Um, I just cannot wait for the movie version as well. (laughs) For, now you have such a storied career, um, but before we get into that, uh, for uh, if there's any listeners who haven't yet got themselves a copy, and of course they should, uh, can you tell us what it's about? Sure. Um, Well, it's uh, essentially a story about a next-level futuristic surveillance agency called Fusion, um, who have a mission to make society safer by, as they proclaim, uh, being able to find anyone, anywhere, anytime. And to prove this concept, uh, to test the system's capabilities and and thereby secure uh, a $90 billion in government funding, Fusion and its its uh, leader Cy Baxter has to show has to prove that they can find and capture ten specifically selected contestants who are tasked with going off grid for thirty days. If a successful contestant stays off grid for thirty days, they win uh, three million tax free dollars. So they're well incentivized to try and do this. And Fusion, not to spoil the story, but they're they they succeed beyond their wildest dreams initially. But the holdout, the one they can't seem to get a handle on, is a Boston librarian called Caitlin Day. And they expected to catch her first, but for some reason she proves a quite a slippery fish. Now, how in the world did this idea come to mind? Was it the themes first or the premise? Yeah, I think it was the themes. I think I, I kind of date it back to 2000. Uh, 2016, 
um, and a series of conversations with friends where it was that point where we were, probably all of us were becoming aware that our phones may be listening to us, our devices may be working against us. And specifically, it was that sort of eerie, creepy uh, moment where, say, you've been discussing something uh, about taking a holiday to Mallorca, and then you get a targeted ad for Mallorca on your phone. Uh, or everyone I mentioned this to says, oh, my God, I've had exactly the same thing. Maybe you've popped into a store and just for a couple of seconds and then walked out and then suddenly that you're being targeted with the commercials for that. And so it was the sense that that that, that technology has become sort of adversarial on, on a very covert level. Um, the uh, data being collected, um, sold um, against our, our wishes, but not, often not against our permission because we we give away our rights, we click them away in our haste to open some news story we're always just clicking accepting 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 and um and we now live in in a, a very different world from 25 years ago so you wanted to explore that those themes but when did you come up with the idea of the 10 people the 10 zeros who are essentially needing to stay off grid or it's in this it's like like a competition right so when did you come up with this premise Oh, it sort of emerged naturally out of the idea that, um, okay, so I had to create um, the Goliath, which would be the system and all seeing kind of almost a, a sort of uh, 1984, but, you know, 50 years later kind of version of the all seeing eye. And um, I wanted someone that you wouldn't suspect um, of being able to evade um, that surveillance apparatus to be a key character and so you know the idea of a contest emerged quite naturally because it is a kind of contest that we're in if you want to preserve your 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 privacy these days you are really engaged in a sort of competition with big data yes and these people aren't just pitted against fusion you know or, or psi but also but against technology itself and the development of technology itself um, especially the level of surveillance technology. What did you have to do to research what was possible um, to make this authentic? Well, when I started out, I, I thought I'm going to write a, a novel five years in the future. Um, and so it was, it was a lot of speculation, uh, a lot of research, but also speculation on where I thought this would go where this technology would possibly go um and um as i wrote it uh, the five years in the future became three years in the future and two years in the future and probably anyone reading the book today it's maybe five minutes in the future because that's the speed in which um this stuff has has uh, been dropped on you know on society and uh it's it's no longer a sort of piece of science fiction I just want to backtrack because you're originally from New Zealand. You uh, are currently talking to us from Nice. You live in London. Um, can you take us back? I think you started off in journalism. Is that right? When did you decide that you wanted to be a writer? I really never did. Um, and, and you're quite right. I, I left school desperate to get out of school um, and uh, took the took the first job that popped up, which was a, a career in journalism, which when you start off as a cup journalist, you're doing the weather map, you know, you're not interviewing prime ministers. 
Um, but I was then, someone said he's uh, good enough to be given sole charge of a suburban branch of the newspaper. So at the age of 19, I had a car and a house and was in charge of a large part of um, sort of rural Taranaki, which is a province in New Zealand. And I did that for about three years and it was really good training. And um, you learn certain things about structure and about um, this sort of demystifies the writing process that you're not allowed to think it's something, you know, mystical. Um, you're not allowed to wait for inspiration. You, you have to get on with it. And so you you learn the craft. It's a it's a very good way in. And that sort of morphed uh, later when I went to universe back to university and um, became, you know, started to think that there might be a creative route for this stuff. But, um, you know, it was really one one small step at a time. So you've been nominated for multiple Academy Awards. You've written, you know, these massive biopics, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Theory of Everything, um, Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody, The Two Popes. Um, when did you think, I want to get into film, I want to do screenwriting, and what attracted you to it? It was there was a there was a moment in in New Zealand where the indigenous uh, national um, film industry was really starting to develop. It was like had was had, had gone through its adolescence and was sort of reaching a sort of maturity. And very interesting writers were starting to to get opportunities to work in film. And you know I'd always loved film and TV and. Uh, and so I, I, it was really just an experiment to see whether I could get involved in in that side of things. And you know, it, my I wasn't earning a great deal of money out of the theatre or or books at that point. And I thought, you know, maybe I can augment that. Um, you know, um, so there was a creative challenge, but also like you know, we have to put food on the table. So I could either be a postman or I could write a screenplay. <laughs> and then I found out actually screenplays are incredibly difficult to do well. Um, the discipline required and the techniques are, are really quite different. So um, it was a, a long apprenticeship. If you can cast your mind back to your earlier earlier ones, what did you have to consciously learn or do different than writing novels? It's it's really an art of concision. Um, it's it, you know you're not permitted really interior thought. Um, and so you have everything has to be externalized and you have to often find visual ways of saying something would be the in, internal thought. So it's a different way of approaching storytelling and you use different devices. And then there's all the techniques of film, which are unique to film. Um, the cut, um, which we don't so much use in novels. We don't cut back and forth, intercut, intercut, intercut. Um, but there are <clears throat> there are storytelling narrative advantages and cuts on film. Um, that you you have to learn, and that's just one of the techniques. It's um, it's creating point of view um, and steering point of view and leading people in a very controlled way. You know, you really have to have a real firm hand on your story. You have to know where it's going. You're not you cannot allow yourself all these detours, um, which are often the most pleasurable part of a novel is the detour, mm. but but it's it's uh, it's that's it, not so welcome in film. A common element in your uh, screenwriting is that you're writing about people and real people. And of course, The Darkest Hour is about Churchill. So you're writing mm -hmm. about people, you're writing about their lives. What is the 
most challenging thing about, you know, oh, here's someone's life. They've had this really massive full life. <laughs> what in the world do I concentrate on? Yeah, that's it. That's it. And, you know, human lives don't conform to a three-act structure. You know, mm. maybe three acts, but they're not necessarily in, in the order one, two, three. Um, and so you have to sort of find the story in the story. And, um, you know, I've, I've passed up quite a few sort of biographical subjects with, you know, massive figures like Einstein. Um, and you say, what, how, what? he must be the leading contender for a story, you know, probably the person of the 20th century. Um, but I couldn't find a story in there. I couldn't find a cohesive way to to tell that to tell that tale. Um, so yeah, it's um you've got to tell something new, bring something fresh, especially if they're a famous figure. So that's one of the the boxes I have to tick before I begin something. It's like, God, we know so much about them already. Mm. Do I have anything new or fresh to say about this person? And you know, if I can tick that box, that's the beginning. And the more recently, you've been writing for Broadway with the collaboration, which is about the collaboration with Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat and also the Neil Diamond, um, A Beautiful Noise about Neil Diamond. What, uh, what do you have to do differently there again when it's on stage compared to the experience of uh, the, the planning of writing a novel? Um, you, there are just a whole new bunch of constrictions that you, you, you're suddenly working with on stage um, with uh, something like Neil Diamond. Um, you know, I had to some, you have to fold in the music and the music can't be time out from the story. It has to be a, an extension of the story. It has to move the, the narrative forward. So there's a great deal of organization and getting your ducks in a row before you 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 sort of can start to imagine a a, narr a clean narrative in in Neil's story. Um, for example, I mean, I, I I went to see Neil in in Times Square in New York. My first meeting with him, and my mother was crazy about him. We had <laughs> we had two pictures on our mantelpiece when I grew up. One was the Pope, and one was Neil Diamond. So she was just a mad crazy fan. So she's passed away now, and I thought, you know, I would really love to do as a tribute to her, um, you know, a musical. But I had no idea what the story would be. And walking to meet Neil across Times Square, I thought inevitably I'm going to be asked by someone in the room, what's your idea for this thing? And I thought as a professional, I, I should say, well, it's far too early. It would be premature for me to, um, to venture what the story is, but I'm interested. But when I got in the room, yes, someone said, so what's your idea for the story? And I remembered a, a detail, just a, a, an illuminating detail that I couldn't forget about Neil that he'd said in an interview that he had Freudian therapy for two years and that he said nothing for the two years and neither did the therapist. They didn't challenge each other at all. And it was entirely unsuccessful. And A, oh, you were in therapy for two years, so there were issues that you were trying to face. And B, you couldn't face them. And I went, that's the musical. So I'm going to pitch a therapy scene and the, the musical, musical will, will open with two chairs facing each other and the first scene, no one will say anything. And I thought, well, that's probably the most disastrous pitch you could possibly make for a music, Broadway musical. Um, but I pitched it and Neil went silent for a minute um, and said, I'm a believer. Oh. And, uh, 
So it's it's going with your gut. It's going with with something which you think could hold it all together. Something that could be revealing. Peel the onion. You know, give us an insight into this person. Um, that uh, that 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 maybe you know teach us something about you know all of us. Mm. When you have a career like you do, where you've got films, you've got stage, you've got novels. How do you decide where you're going to spend your time? Because these are not short form things. They're very time consuming. And you have to dedicate entire chunks of your life into the research, the writing, all that kind of stuff. So how do you actually make that decision as to, I'm going to write going zero now or whatever it is that's on your plate? Mm. Well, no, that was obviously a novel, um, uh, novel form um, because I wanted a lot of interior thought. I want a lot of interior argument about the rights and wrongs of, of technology so i thought i thought that was the the initial place to start it I, it may turn into a film i hope it does but that was not the intention it was um um it was very much to do a sort of state of the state of the of the world type novel um neil diamond is obviously obviously a, a musical the collaboration on the play is a duologue it's a, it's a, it's it's another installment in my interest in in debate in in contradictory ideas about a certain subject trying to find a middle ground so um that you know that was a the the theater is a perfect place for that with two talking heads going at it debating a, a single subject um so you know there's usually an element in the story that that tells me where where's the home for it but what is it that de- makes you decide it's going to be this project i'm going to spend the next year working on Oh, I see what your question is. Mm. Um, it's got it, it's got to excite me as a story, and and usually the the key ingredient, other than the premise, which has to have something, um, I don't want to say profound about it, but something uh, relevant about it. You know, relevant to, in society right now. Um, I don't just want sort of timepieces that have no contemporary relevance. So I wanted to speak to the to the world now, but um, I need to know the ending. And if if I'm excited the by the, yeah, and if I'm excited by the ending, then I know how to write the rest of it because the ending contains the DNA of the whole story. And you you when you know your destination, you're very much in control of the journey in a way that you're not if you don't know the ending. So you can do misdirects and stuff, and you know it's a misdirect. It's not. It's not a detour where you're lost. Everything is is done very knowingly, and um, you can you can do all your tricks um, to deceive and mislead, and 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 we're always with the foreknowledge that you're going to deliver the audience and a and or the reader in a satisfying place. So with everything you have created, you've always known the ending for, at the start. Yeah, and I don't begin, and I don't even take on or say yes to a project until I know that. And it, wow. it gives it, it gives me a great deal of confidence, and it allows me to work quite rapidly. Because um, I've I had many false starts at the beginning of my career, and I go, oh my god, I don't know where this is going. I don't know how to how to really deliver on this premise, which seems so promising when I began, and now I just hate it, and I can't see why I was vaguely interested in this subject so you did um, try it early on like without knowing yeah. the ending and it just didn't work for you yeah and i would say the great majority of writers never require knowledge of the ending 
you know mm. you hear from a lot of writers versions of um you know i have an opening image and i write from that and it's just an extrapolation of the opening image or um even probably even more common uh, i let the characters tell me where to go yes <laughs> I, i'm i'm more in the Neb nabokovian mold of the characters are my slaves and i need to be in charge <laughs> so when you're in the depths of writing let's take going zero when you're actually writing your your draft you know early on and you really mm. need to spend a lot of time on it what does your day look like are you actually only writing it or are you doing this and then I'll write a screenplay in the afternoon I might write this Broadway show in the evening what does your day look like when you're focusing on a particular like let's take going zero yeah I remember when I was starting out I used to read a lot of um, biographies about famous writers to kind of sort of decode what the secret was how do you do it and I remember reading John Updike uh, about John Updike and he had three desks one for critic for his critical pieces <clears throat> one for his uh short stories and one for his novels it's three separate desks three separate typewriters three different worlds and he said he would like a like a honeybee just sort of land on each desk and move between all three and i thought how insane <laughs> well my life's turned out like that i don't have <laughs> i don't have three desks but i have it's all in the computer and i jump between all manner of things um but I do it. I do it with a degree of confidence because I, a, I've kind of learned how to do this thing, and it is for me. It's it's eighty ninety percent craft, and and it's it's taken me a long time to sort of feel that I have some sort of control over it. But b, like I said before, I know where I'm going with these things, and and with the confidence and the and the the insured feeling that it's it's an you know that I have a sort of insurance policy. My excitement doesn't dwindle, so I can just jump off to something else and I go, that's going to be a great trip for readers or, or cinema goers or play goers. And then I can jump over to this one and I know this, it's not, you know, the flame isn't going to go out. So you would actually in one day write three different, completely different projects? Yeah, sometimes five. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Plus, plus 50 emails and I'm producing... Uh, you know, as well. So I'm producing three movies right now. And uh, so jumping between all that kind of stuff as well. It's it's quite mad, but it's it's things I couldn't have contemplated doing when I was starting out. But, you know, the more you do it, the more you do it, the more um, sort of regular and, and um, natural it feels. But apart from the skill to be able to switch very quickly and change hats very quickly, there's also the issue of the fact that there's 24 hours in the day. How do you fit it all in? I I think I probably work less than most people in terms of hours that I put in. Um, my wife might disagree with that. She said, you know, you never switch off actually in your head. But um, in terms of, you know, getting my butt down on a chair, I, I don't do very many hours. Um, but I think I learned something when I was a journalist, you know, when there's, the sub-editor June Littman smoking her cigarettes and drinking Campari and soda across the across the press room was looking at me over her half moons saying where's the story where's the story and you had you know you didn't have you didn't have time you had to just sort of get on with it and you know pound it out on the old typewriters and um and so I I, I tend to get on with it 
Um, so that speed, obviously, because, yeah, journalists need to write fast and to deadline. So that speed obviously came over to your all the other forms of writing. If we take going zero, can you uh, remember um, how long it took from when you decided to start, actually start the manuscript, to when you typed the end? Well, having just sort of... Um, you know, droned on about working fast. Uh, going zero was laborious. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was. I I have such respect for genre thriller writers now. Um, I I I don't to, to classify this as a thriller. I think it's a novel that that may, for some readers, be thrilling. But it's. I bought all the qualities I would normally bring to to an, uh, just an ordinary novel to it um, with characterization and setting and place and so forth. Um, but by God, it took me a long time to wrestle this plot to the ground. And although I kind of knew my destination, I kept changing my mind about the the route to get there. And, uh, I, you know, there's 10 candidates who have to outwit the surveillance apparatus. And I used to think, God, why did I invent 10? I should have had three because, you know, they, they have to be smart um, ideas. It's how would you do it? You know, how would, how would you evade for 30 days the, the all-seeing surveillance world we live in right now? Um, well, I had to come up with 10 of those, and they all mm -hmm. had to, in their own way, feel real. Um, they had to be caught in a, in a way that you wouldn't expect. So there's tons of research about what the reach of surveillance society and it's the... the, the the, the um you know the tools that they now have many of them already deployed many of them very insidious um and i thought you know the world should know about some of those mm. so let's talk about those those 10 people you you were mentioning characterization that how did you come up with the what were your decision making factors in coming up with the mix of the 10 people to ensure that they were i mean they're, they're pretty diverse yeah, I want. I, I didn't want them all to just be experts in the field. I wanted the reader's own sort of impulses and ideas to be represented. So I had ten. Uh, I had five amateurs and five professionals. Um, so there was a good mix of just you know what you or your mom or your kids would do, um, and and what an expert would do, um, and and it's sort of across the range and um, from the one who is the lead character, Caitlin Day, who who is a completely analog person, has so no social media, and who therefore you would suspect would be the first one caught. She sort of represented one end of the spectrum. And the, the tenth one is a surveillance expert guy. And um and so I just sort of charted them on that graph, you know, put put them once I had the two extremes, I kind of knew where the other the other eight would be. You once said this, so I'm quoting you now, <laughs> you can take what seems to be quite, quite a small amount of ability and giftedness and turn it into something really interesting if you place upon yourself sustained creative pressure to go beyond what you think you can do. It's amazing. I actually think we can grow those parts of the brain and make yourself talented quite literally, which I thought was really interesting. What might your suggestions be for listeners who our listeners are all aspiring writers who would love to grow those parts of their brain? What 
can they do for that sustained creative pressure? Work and stay at it and stay stay focused and inspired and, you know, be ambitious. Um, I often do uh, masterclasses and young writers are the, predominantly the people who come to this. And you would think that a message like, you know, it might take 10 years for you to, to become talented. Um, you'd think that they would be very disenchanted by or disheartened by that, but they're not because the news that you can, you can be really, really good at this, at this profession, even though there doesn't seem to be much evidence that you're, you're very good right now is not the end of the story. And I, I only say that from experience because I was mediocre. You know, when I started out, I just had a desire to be a writer, but there was no evidence based on what I was producing that I was anything more than mediocre. And there were plenty of people to tell me I was mediocre. And they they did. And, you know, and you have those moments, those, you know, um, come to Jesus moments where you say, God, do I want to spend my whole life doing something I'm not very good at? But I stuck with it and I got better at it. And, and the stuff that I wrote 10 years after I began the, the young guy could not have written. And so I thought there, there's something in my journey that I want to tell other people about. And I think the more we understand about the creative networks in the brain, that's where I come to this idea of placing sustained challenges on those creative networks. And things will happen. I mean, we, we have we have evidence now that the brain spatially changes and, and in terms of its mass and its function, its level of function. And and suddenly you become capable of things you weren't before. So I I, I thought well I, 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 at least it's my experience that talent isn't something just heaven sent and it's fixed. And some people have it and some people don't, and that it can be acquired. That is brilliant. And on that note, congratulations on going zero. And thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Anthony McCartan and his book Going Zero is just such a page turner. Now let's move on to my fun facts for this week. After talking earlier in the episode about Pip Williams and her one word a day goal, (laughs) of course then I had to find out what word counts other authors have set for themselves or how much they usually wrote in a day or in a session. And here are some interesting ones that I found. Ernest Hemingway aimed for 500 words a day. Stephen King, a bit more um, industrious, 2,000 words a day. Sarah Waters, a minimum of 1,000 words a day. Kate DiCamillo, two pages a day, five days a week. Nicholas Sparks, 2,000 words a day. J.G. Ballard, 1,000 words a day, even if I've got a hangover. (laughs) Ian McEwan said, I aim for about 600 words a day and hope for at least 1,000 when I'm on a roll. So keep in mind that these are professional authors who are often writing for several hours a day. So if you can only manage 200 words a day or 1,000 words a week, you're still making progress. 
Now we've come to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Feel free to connect with me and many other writers in the listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. Love to have you in there. And of course, feel free to connect with me on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And I live my other life on ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast. Or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter, at writercentercomau slash news, where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions, and much more.